Welcome to episode 7 of the Pogue McGoal podcast. James Carew, co-editor of Pogue McGoal website and magazine. You're listening to the seventh edition of the podcast, accompanying the release of our latest print issue. 64 pages of football culture, history, design, art and more. Each episode features a contributor to the magazine as we explore in more detail the story they've brought to life, as well as other aspects of the game that brings the world together. To date on the podcast, we've featured a bomb-scared Old Trafford, Pavel Nedved's one-in-a-billion knees, Bohemians and the Spanish flu, Brazil women's struggle for respect, and how reunification has impacted former giants of the old East Germany. Toggle back wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch to let us know your thoughts and comments on social media at Pogue McGoal. And you can now order your copy of issue 6 of the Pogue McGoal magazine from pogmagoal.bigcartel.com. On today's episode, this time we're exploring football in France with the author of the article The Man Who Made France Beautiful, a tribute to Michel Hidalgo, who coached Le Bleu for some of their greatest games. But first, I'm delighted to welcome back my co-host Joe Phelan, a writer and editor based in London, whose most recent work has featured on the Vice website and who made the most of his lockdown in 2020 by challenging himself and completing the achievement of reading 52 books in 52 weeks. Welcome back, Joe. Oh, thank you. I feel like I've got nothing to say now. You've, you've spouted all my achievements. <laughs> well, to try and keep a positive spin as we progress into 2021, with increasing signs that the world may begin to open again as we see the rollout of vaccines, let me ask you, Joe, when we can return to live football in big numbers, what team or player are you most looking forward to seeing in the flesh? Well, as you know, I'm a Spurs fan, so it's probably not going to come as any surprise that I want to see uh, Gareth Bale back. Um, so when he, when he came back to Spurs, it was a bit of a fairy tale moment, really. He's my favourite player of all time. And though it hasn't quite worked out yet, and if I'm honest, I don't expect it to work out in the long term either, but... Just seeing him back in a Spurs shirt and seemingly enjoying himself, it was something I didn't expect. So I'd absolutely love to to get to see him in um, in the new stadium as well. I, I just, I for some reason, I just don't think it's going to happen though. I, I either think we're not going to get back in this stadium this season or I think Bale could end up going back early to Madrid, if I'm honest. So yeah, that, that's a very 20, 20, 20, 20, 21 answer, isn't it? The thing I'm looking forward to is something that I just don't anticipate is actually going to happen. Yeah, you're always cheery, Joe. But anyway, Sorry. I think my, my choice would be you have to try to see Messi in the flesh, don't you? Uh, preferably in Barcelona. I think Messi at the Etihad is not as exciting as 
messy at the new camp, but we'll wait and see. But he, he seems so sad now, though. He doesn't even seem to be enjoying his football. Surely wait till he's having a lovely time at PSG, go and have a weekend in Paris, watch him have, hanging out with Neymar again. The perfect segue, because I'm delighted that our guest today is Jeremy Smith, a writer who was featured in The Guardian on CNN and TalkSport, amongst others, and is co-founder of French Football Weekly, the English language website and podcast dedicated to French football. Welcome to the Pogue Gold podcast, Jeremy. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's ask you the same question. When we can get back into stadiums, what player or team would you go watch first? I see you're a Brighton and a Mets fan. Yeah, I mean, as a Brighton fan, I think I'm going to give a sort of similar answer about looking forward to something I'm not really looking forward to. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, my, yeah, my first choice would be go down, to go down to the Amex and watch Brighton. But we haven't won a home match all season. We only won one the whole of 2020. So, uh yeah, I'd want to go back there, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be going with any confidence at all. And I think uh, Gareth Bale. I think he's only scored one Premier League goal since he's been back, and obviously that was a winner against Brighton as well. I wasn't going to bring that up, but what a header! <laughs> <laughs> so in each episode, we like to ask our guests what is it that got them interested in football, and I'll ask you that, Jeremy. But then progress it into how you got interested in French football. Sure. So, well, I mean what got me into football, I guess, the, the same as anyone else, really. Just, you know, it's it's everywhere. Um, my dad was into football, so, you know, some of the earliest memories, just sitting watching matches with my dad and probably at, at first not really knowing what was going on and then um, probably picking the wrong team to support. <laughs> um, and then sort of, you know, I guess like a lot of people, World Cups sort of really get you even more into it, especially when you start collecting Panini sticker albums, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just sort of brought up following Brighton because it's where I was from and it was a team my dad supported. The first matches I went to were, were, were down at the old Goldstone ground. Um, and then French football, just because I'm half French. Um, my mum's French. I've got dual nationality. So right. I sort of always followed a little bit of French football in passing. And then again, during a couple of World Cups, or there was a World Cup where I happened to be in France and, and France were doing pretty well. And that just got me into that. And sort of, I, I'm not really sure why, but for a long time, I kind of supported England and France and gradually it just became more and more France. And um, and then sort of more recently, even though I've always followed French league football in terms of sort of wanting to get into the the writing and the podcasting, I just thought well, there's so many people covering Premier League football, I might as well use my knowledge of French football and the fact that I speak French as a to sort of create a bit of a niche for myself. But it's just sort of following up the interest that I had anyway and making a little bit more of it. And now if France played England, who are you shouting for? France every time. Well, I'll join you with that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, certain sports, maybe it might be different, but football, definitely always France. We don't get too exposed to French football in this part of the world. Um, and obviously PSG has become this behemoth with the money that has gone in there. What is the reaction to that, to PSG becoming this giant in the same way that Munich is FC Hollywood and the money that's gone into Man City? Is it, has it skewed French football and, and the public who watch it? I think you have to say at the moment it's definitely skewed it. I mean, I know Monaco won the league a couple of years back, but generally since PSG have, have had the money and won their first title, they've, they've pretty, pretty much won every trophy going. 
Um, obviously, you know, they, they can buy, they've got money to buy players like Neymar or Mbappe that no other French club can. And probably more than that, certainly from my point of view, the problem isn't even the players they can bring in, but it's the fact that they can keep players so they can sort of build year on year and try to build some kind of dynasty. Whereas every other French club, they're basically a selling club. So, you know, Lyon have got a brilliant conveyor belt of young players. Lille have got a really good scouting system. But as soon as a player does well there, you know they're going to leave the following summer. So no other, every, any other team that has a bit of success, they're almost certainly not going to match it the following year because they'll probably sell whoever it was that, that gave them that success the previous season. Um, I mean, the, the hope is that the exposure that PSG are giving to, to the league will sort of trickle down to the other teams. But it's yet to be seen. I mean, the, the big hope last summer was obviously that the league was going to enter into another, uh, not another, a first sort of really big TV contract and that a lot of money would come in through that. But in the last couple of months, that's completely collapsed, which is actually leaving clubs in even more financial problems. And we're not even sure yet, you know, what's going to happen in terms of televising matches. So there's still a hope that it will make the whole league more competitive and it is giving the league more exposure not that it necessarily needs it because you see the number of talented young players that are moving to the other leagues. So, you know, the, the big clubs around Europe do already know that the French leagues are a good breeding ground for young players. But certainly in terms of the sort of competitiveness of the league itself, it's, it's not really ideal at the moment. Although this year, it does look like we're going to have a title fight this year, hopefully, but we'll see. How uh, resilient would PSG be if the owners decided they didn't want to be part of the club anymore? Because you saw there were was, was really rich owners at Monaco for a bit, weren't there? And then they just left. And then it looked like Monaco were going to collapse at one point. Like they, they kept coming re like really low in the league tables. And then you saw it with Angie as well in, um, in Russia. So I'm just wondering, like, if those owners pull out, would PSG still be a force to be reckoned with? Like, do they still get a lot of fans or would they, would they struggle? So like, Monaco has just has always been a bit of a quirky team because they've always been, or club, because they've, firstly, they've always been connected to the royal family there. So often, you know, before Russian owners came in, it was the royal family that was able to chuck in some money or bail them out when there was a bit of a problem. And it's weird because there's barely any fans there because obviously hardly anyone lives there. The people that do live there are probably mostly foreign people who just are there for tax breaks or whatever. But at least they have a bit of a, a sort of rich footballing history. PSG actually, although they're a relatively new club, they're only sort of 50 years old, they do have a very strong fan base. Beforehand, it was sort of, I guess, more of a sort of British style sort of traditional fan base of like Parisian working class who, who go there to, to forget about everything else and, and have fun on the terraces or whatever. Um, and it even led to sort of a few hooligan problems. And I think, you know, maybe a good analogy in England is probably more like Chelsea, that since the money's come in, I think a lot of the fan base has become a little bit more sort of gentrified. And, you know, you see a lot more kind of, I don't know, famous people there wanting to be seen. You've got Nicolas Sarkozy trying to, you know, steal some of the reflected glory, all that kind of thing. So I think that there's a bit of tension between the old fans and the new fans. Um, so if the money were to leave, I think even beforehand, they'd only won sort of two or three titles, but they were very, they had a lot of cup success. They were still one of the main clubs in France and obviously being in Paris, which is an attractive place to live anyway, I think they, you know, they, they still got a history of bringing in very good players. So 
without the money, I still think they'd, they'd be a big club. And now, obviously, they've got even more foundations there, which would help. But um, it would be interesting to see sort of how many of the, the new fans hang around and or how much the old fans sort of come back and almost take back the club that I think a few of them feel has sort of been pulled away from them. So the national team is, of course, world champions. And people might be forgiven for thinking... This was a common thing with winning the World Cup in France 98, winning the European Championships two years later. But your article is about the architect of the breakthrough French team. Il était l'architecte de la première grande victoire de la France, Michel Hidalgo. The Oisin he threw and he's gone over. It's in. It's a goal for France. It is Bruno Ballone. The European Championship is staying here in France. Michel Hidalgo's team are European champions. Champion d'Europe, ça fait du bien quand même au football français. Merci, Monsieur Hidalgo, et bon repos. And your article in issue six is about Michel Hidalgo, who was the coach for some of France's greatest games. I've loved reading this article and reading it again in preparation for today. And especially the opening, because you took us back to the start of the lockdown of 2020 and just how, as they did everywhere else, French TV started to show some of those iconic games. But it was bookended by the 87th birthday of this man and sadly the passing of him. Yes, so um, as you said, like France, even even now, I mean, there's a lot of people who, who would say that it's not really a big footballing nation. I mean, there's certainly sort of barely any tradition of, of sort of away fans and it's certainly nowhere near as big as in England or Germany or Italy, for example. Um, it's kind of everyone's second favourite sport, but a lot of people would certainly in terms of like attachment to teams it's not the same and for a long time that was that was quite well borne out by France's results I mean they got to the World Cup semi-final in 1958 but that's pretty much the only success they, they had in the World Cup even now they haven't got a great record certainly for winning European club competitions so they were yeah they were in a bit of the wilderness I guess until yeah, kind of 1976 when Michel Hidalgo came in as the coach um, and it happened that at exactly the same time Michel Platini came in as player and, and quite a few other sort of very talented players and the coach and these players together you know, managed to kind of start building a sort of football heritage for France which was kind of gradual. It started with a qualification for the 78 World Cup which was already the first France qualification for 12 years. Um, then obviously 82 and the sort of tragedy of, as the French would call it, of the um, the semi-final defeat against West Germany. And then obviously the, the peak was was 84 and winning the European Championship. But um, yeah, certainly I think any French fan would say that all of the success that has come since then all started with Michel Hidalgo, Michel Platini and and. The, that that team that sort of took France from from nowhere to European champions. 
I'm struck by that you say it in the piece. Hidalgo himself said France was a small footballing nation. And players, it may have been Platini said, when they went to places like Eastern Europe, coming away with a draw was seen as a good result. So, so France was not this powerhouse in world football. Reading it, I was struck by the similarities with Ireland and Jack Charlton, actually. Not so much in the style stakes. I think Jack was about results and Hidalgo was about performance. It just happens that we also lost Jack Charlton in 2020 and the outpouring of affection for him. Your piece also ends with a reunion of players who would turn up to to meet this man who brought them on this great journey. And it was similar with Irish players who did the same thing. It was also interesting that you said it was a result in the 1982 qualifiers where France beat Holland. In actual fact, France lost to Ireland in that qualifying campaign. But Platini said that was the game that started everything. It was the philosophy of Hidalgo. I think you said he plays three attacking players in midfield and, and that's where it started from and Platini himself pointed that out as a turning point. Yeah, the, the sort of the famous, not cliche, but um, the famous players or formation that's associated with this team is the carré magique, the, the sort of magic diamond or, or magic square, which was made up of a couple of the players sort of chopped and changed, but the main ones were Platini, Alain Gires, uh, Jean Tigana, and then 82, certainly. The other one was Giangini, and then he was replaced by Louis Fernandez. Basically, that was France's midfield. Funnily enough, very similarly to both 98 and arguably 2018, they they won without sort of without any striker scoring that many goals because the, the midfield was, was so good that they didn't really need them. And, you know, an 84 Platini from midfield scored nine goals in uh, five games, which, which is a fantastic record. Um, so, but yeah, it all kind of started off in, in qualifying for 82, where I think that there was a match where Platini was injured. So Jures came in and played so well that they felt that they couldn't drop him for the next match. Um, and then Hidalgo, as you said, he was very much about playing beautiful football. He, to be honest, he probably thought he was so close to the sack anyway that he might as well go down in flames. And he played a really attacking formation, basically with three number 10s. It worked out brilliantly and he pretty much stuck with that formation for the next uh, two, three years and all the success that came with it. As well, I, I think the article's brilliant as well. And one thing that, that I picked up on was that how his reign pretty much altered the French public's mentality towards the national side. So 40 years ago, you go to a team like, I don't know, Bulgaria, you'd lose and they think, no big deal, we kind of expected that. Um, but now I'd say they're not really happy with anything other than tournament victories. Is, is that fair to say? So like the, the whole idea of what is required of a French manager now and the responsibility and the expectation that come with that is just worlds apart from what it was maybe two or three generations ago. I think it's, it's something with the French psyche. I mean, I mentioned in the article someone called Raymond Poulidor, and actually I think he passed away last year as well. This was a guy who finished... I think second or third, like seven or eight times in the Tour de France, but was a lot more popular than any of the Tour de France winners because France just love a romantic loser for some reason. And there's still an element of that, I think. And even 
even in 2018, winning the World Cup, you would still have seen a lot of um, French pundits and even fans sort of saying, frankly, we'd rather not have won than, than winning with this kind of really pragmatic style, which, I mean, I think is unfair, first of all, because it's, you know, it's a winning business. And secondly, because actually I don't think the style was as bad as some people said, but that's another story. But definitely, I think as I put that the 1982 semi-final was a kind of tipping point because that was sort of the ultimate in sort of tragic, romantic, valiant failure, um, you know, complete injustice, outplaying the West Germans, um, having a player almost killed by the West German goalkeeper who got away with it. And then obviously he's the one who's still on the pitch to to save a couple of penalties in the shootout. And so that's sort of, yeah, that, that really is the kind of the tipping point because, as I said, that a lot of people would still say that's their favourite France match. It You know, it still brought more emotions than any of the wins that have come since. But it sort of battle-hardened the French, certainly in footballing terms. And since then, it's, yeah, they, they don't want to feel that pain again. And arguably, I think a lot of, you know, Deschamps, a lot of the current squad would say we wouldn't have won in 2018 if we hadn't experienced the pain of defeat in 2016 in the Euro final. And, you know, I, I recommend anyone watching um, Paul Pogba's um, team talk in the in the changing room before the World Cup final against Croatia. It's all about sort of remembering how they felt in 2016 and how they don't want to go through that again. So I think there is still a balance and there are still a lot of French people who would actually prefer romantic failure than uh, ugly victory. But let's be fair, it's easy to to kind of have the trophy on your shelf and then complain about how you won it than, than not have it at all. And probably you're probably fair to say for for you two as well. Like, um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of French people who who said, you know, we'd rather not have qualified for 2010 than qualify for it the the way we did with the handball. Yeah, yeah. I was afraid you were going to bring that up. I was at that, game, <laughs> but maybe that's why I also drew the comparison with Jack Charlton. We're the world champions at romantic failure. So, but. What really comes across is that style was so important to him. There's some fantastic quotes. He said, to coach France, you have to be in love with Le Bleu. You have to want offensive football to show the beauty of it to the whole world. We're representing the country. And he also described himself as a poet. He's, I mean, by all accounts, he was just a really, really nice guy who had a very special relationship with, with his players. And arguably it sort of didn't do him any favours because I think his um, sort of tactical ability and, and his his sort of knowledge and, and ability as a coach was probably underrated because people only saw him as a man-manager and because he had Michel Platini, who was such a great sort of on-field general. I think that um, he wasn't given enough credit for, for the, the tactical um, part of his game. But um, that love of football, love of his players and love of, of style, I guess, and not over substance because he felt substance came with the style, but um, for him that was the most important thing. And although he was happy with the subsequent World Cup wins, he did feel that the, the 98 win was you know, not done with anywhere near the same kind of style as the 1984 win. So I think it probably was a little bit of a tension for him. I, I mean, for me personally, I just think the French are a little bit obsessed with that and, you know, it's something that's used to, to criticise Deschamps all the time. But 
again, it, I suppose it does depend what you want. I don't think there are many teams now, certainly not international teams, that do have a particular style. And frankly, I don't actually. I think the teams that just play pretty football don't win things often. Um, you know, the, the Holland team of 74 is loved. The France and the Brazil teams of 1982 are loved. But the fact is, they didn't win World Cups. Um, the hist- you know, although they will be known, the World Cup winners are the ones that are the ones written in the history books, I guess. I think that's what struck me too, is that it's of its time that he would experiment game to game with formations and players. And you don't see that now. He said, whereas in 98, they played with one 10 and then three number sixes, he played with three number 10s. A manager, and especially an international manager, doesn't get away with changing formations or playing players out of position anymore. But Hidalgo would do it game by game. I think it's probably because of the development of, of football in a lot of ways. I mean, I've seen a couple of articles recently about how the, the fact that there's no such thing as a number 10 even, anymore even. So, you know, just having three available is already something pretty special. Um, then probably nowadays, just I think, I think it's fair to say with the the money and the way football is, there's probably bigger egos. I mean, to be fair, you couldn't get much of a bigger ego than Michel Platini, even though it was sort of well warranted. But um, anyone who's kind of known as a good number 10, it's probably a struggle to, you know, in England, there was always that debate about why can't Lampard and Gerrard play together? I think it's because they were such sort of big fish in in their clubs and they didn't want to share that kind of glory or that position um, for the country. So I think that that is an issue now. And I just think the demands of, of football currently, like you know, the Champions League, is probably more in, more important for most players than, than international football, rightly or wrongly. Um, and you've got the Nations League, you don't have as many friendlies. I know friendlies are criticised, but I do think they can be important for sort of testing out formations and players. So I just think, it's not that it was amateurish in those days, but I just think there was probably, although there was still pressure to do the, you know, get job, the job done. It, I don't think it's the same kind of pressure as now. So I think there was a lot more freedom on coaches and players to try more things, to be able to um, focus more on the style of football than the results. And, and yeah, I suppose the fact that France had never won anything before meant that the worst he could do was match everyone that had gone before him. Whereas a coach now with the players they've got, with the reputation that France have got in world football now, if you don't win something or you don't do well, then you're a failure compared to previous coaches. How influential do you think this period in um, France's history was in instigating the next generation of stylish footballers? Because three of those stylish footballers of, of my childhood anyway were Henri, Cantona and Zidane. And they would have been the, the subsequent generation. So how influenced do you think they were by this style of football and by the, the relationship between uh, Platini and the manager? Um, I, I found out only sort of two or three or a couple of months ago that in the same way that that Germany, that West Germany semi-final in 82 is probably the, the, the sort of marquee France match. Arguably in 1984 in the Euro win, the final was a little bit of a damp squib, but the semi-final against Portugal was in Marseille was an epic. It's one that France won um, in the in the last minute of extra time. I only found out a little while ago that Zidane was a bull boy in that match. Wow. Um, so uh, I think, you know, being 
being there on the side of the pitch when that happened can't fail to sort of influence you in some ways. And yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's obvious that um, previous generations, certainly the ones that you sort of grow up watching and, and being inspired by and having those emotions, I think they're definitely going to um, have an influence on you. So, you know, Canton is a little bit older. He would surely have seen Platini in his prime, um, probably actually even played under him, um, possibly when, when Platini was, was France coach for a little while. Um, and, you know, certainly Mbappe would say that Henri was one of his heroes growing up. So that there's definitely that progression there. I mean, if, if you're a kid and, and you're seeing France lift trophies or, or get to get to World Cup semi-finals or whatever, it's, it's definitely going to influence you. Going on Joe's point, I was also struck about how Hidalgo would have influenced coaches. So Wenger, for example similarly said football should be played to please people. I think he called himself, uh, kind of poetically, a facilitator of the beauty of man, which sounds something like Hidalgo would subscribe to. Would He He sounds like he would very much have been influenced by it is the style and the substance. And of course, he was the great uh, instigator of French players coming to the Premier League. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Um... I mean, that whole argument about sort of, you know, beautiful failure versus pragmatic defeat, probably, you know, the best example recently is Arsenal. And it's, it's that, you know, when they were winning under Wenger, it was great because it was not only were they playing the best football, but they were winning doing it. Then they're, they're not winning anything, but they're still playing beautiful football and they're trying to still sort of claim that they're the moral victors. But again, the fact is when you're not winning trophies, it doesn't matter. Um so that there's always that tension. And, and yeah, I think Wenger, like Hidalgo, was able to, at least for the first half of his Arsenal career, was able to, to do both, which is fantastic. But I just, you know, I, I, I do think it's getting harder and harder to do that. And, you know, that's why Mourinho will carry on playing his style of football, because it did work. You know, it worked for Deschamps. Um, you know, as a Brighton fan, we had a we stayed in the Premier League playing really bad football with Chris Hew- under Chris Hutton. Um, now we're playing beautiful football under Graham Potter, but we're, we're in another relegation fight. And at the end of the season, if we do go down, I, d- I don't know what's better. I don't know if it's sort of going down, but at least being fun to watch or grinding out nil-nils and one-nils that keep us up. I'm not sure. Can I, can I just pick up on, on Wenger being the facilitator of beauty? Because he lives about five streets away from me in Barnet, and he's currently having a massive row with Barnet Council because he wants to chop down an oak tree. So okay. he clearly isn't a fan of, of all types of beauty. He's not a fan of nature. <laughs> the only other question I had was, it's interesting how some teams seem to, uh, national teams seem to fluctuate in quality, like Spain, Argentina, Italy, France. They're, sometimes they're great, sometimes they're, they're very average. And then I'm a, a, a long-suffering England fan, and we're just continually second tier and and I wonder if there, there needs to be this sort of revolution in England because you, we were just talking there about how this this style of French football has has carried on over generations and a lot of people now expect that from France I just I still don't think England have any sort of 
distinctive way of playing football. So maybe that's why none of these great players like like Mbappe, like Henri, like Cantona, maybe that's why they're not coming through the ranks. It's because they just don't have anything to specifically aspire to. I just, I just wonder if England need to have, have, have a similar manager and not just uh, have Gareth Southgate, who's clearly a lovely boy, but... He's not. He's not exactly mega passionate, is he? You wouldn't follow him into battle. He's not a poet. I think um, until you know, until, even up to '98 and Zidane. Even though I actually think his contribution to '98 is massively overrated, I think he was um, in 2000. I think he was unbelievable. In in '98, I think, yeah, okay, he scored two goals in the final, but I don't think he did much until then. Um, I, you know. The 58 team was all about um, uh, Raymond Coppa and Juste Fontaine. Then, uh, then there weren't any sort of marquee French players. And then in 84, there was obviously Platini. And then in 98, there was Zidane. I think since then, now it's, it's hard to like pick one player out. And that's what, what is France's strength, that they've got a lot of decent players now. But it took a while for that to happen. And I think it took uh, Claire Fontaine and the, the sort of... Um, you know the kind of youth setup, the national youth setup from um, which kind of came about in the in the eighties. I think the same with Germany after they they sort of failed in in two thousand. I think it was they set up some kind of similar thing and they focused a lot on really good training of coaches as well. Um, I think England is starting to do that now with St George's and you know the fact that they're for the first time, I think it's something, it's something that France and Italy and Spain have been doing for a long time, but I think it's the first time that England are taking sort of under 17, under 18, under 21 world and European tournaments seriously. And you are seeing these players finally coming through. I think also the Premier League is an issue because there's so many foreign players that a lot of the young English players aren't getting a chance there. But I, th- I think they're starting to to see a bit of a change. I I honestly think a lot of it is just typical English arrogance that I think for a long time they just thought, well, we invented football. We're the greatest nation in the world. We don't have anything to learn from anyone else. You know, even those famous shock defeats against uh, Hungary in, in the 50s, they still didn't learn after that. And, you know, even up to the arguably the, the 80s and 90s, it was still mostly sort of kick and rush, ugly football, players like Glenn Hoddle weren't, teams should have been built around players like Hoddle or Letizier and they, they, those kind of players were never trusted. I think now England are changing and starting to have a little bit more of a continental attitude to it. Um, so the change in attitude and these young players coming in might be good for England, but frankly, I hope not. So what, what you... What you potentially are saying there is that Brexit could be good for this because no more foreign players can come here. So got got no choice but to build up the young English players through the ranks. I mean, it will be an accident, but yeah, I think that actually could happen. I hope, yeah, like I said, I hope not. I mean, certainly if it's because of Brexit, I said, well, I don't want to get political, but I don't think England deserve any kind of success if it's based on Brexit, but there you go. Jeremy, we love having the piece in the magazine. I should also say in issue five, you have another superb piece on the non-school, which maybe in a future podcast we'd have you back to talk about, which is just fascinating. It's been brilliant to learn of this man. As I said at the top, we kind of just assumed France was always a powerhouse. Um, I think we can't leave without commenting on the illustration that accompanies it in issue six by Felix Whitlock. It's almost like religious iconography where Hidalgo is lit up in the centre while everyone else around him is in shadow and that was the purpose of his illustration which was to reflect your article 
to bring this man to the fore who did so much for French football. So I want to thank you for coming on today. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks a lot. It's been really good fun. Yeah, it was brilliant. Thank you. And to you, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me back again. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pogba Gold podcast. If you'd like to get involved, you can contact us on social media at Pogba Gold and listen out for future editions with more guests who contributed writing, art, photography and more to both the magazine and website. If you like what you've heard, order your copy of the brand new issue 6 of the Pogue Gold magazine from pogmagold.bigcartel.com. Join us next time on the Pogue Gold podcast. <laughs>